when the Buddha offered his Noble Eightfold Path to be developed to overcome and eventually uproot the defilements that cause all suffering. He grouped the eight factors of the Noble Path into three groups which comprise three trainings. And the first training is the training in sila or ethical conduct and it involves the factors of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. We practice sila or ethical conduct here by taking the precepts. And in some ways we can see that if we were to live our lives according to the precepts with sincerity and integrity, we would, you know, be a good human being. We would be careful not to harm others by our speech and action by paying attention and being mindful of the intention before we speak, before we act. And in doing so, in purifying our speech and our actions of the defilements, we would not transgress against others and therefore we would not be carelessly or intentionally causing harm to others. Well, this is a great foundation for living in community and trying to live harmoniously in community. But even with that, there are still ample suffering in the mind even if it isn't expressed or acted on. And so the Buddha offered the second training, which is both more powerful and more subtle. And it is a training in developing samadhi, which is usually translated as concentration. It also refers to collectedness of mind. And we practice samadhi by developing mindfulness, as we're doing here. And it can be mindfulness of a chosen object, like some of us do, or choiceless objects, or conceptual objects like colors, sounds, and concepts like metta or equanimity. And the mindfulness that we develop moment by moment on these uh, chosen objects, when there is some momentum to that mindfulness, it keeps the defilements temporarily out of the mind. And so we say that samadhi or concentration purifies the mind 
of obsessive defilements temporarily. Well, even for the time we've been here, a few days or a week, when you see or when you experience a stretch of time, whether it's 30 seconds or 30 minutes, when there are no or very few obsessive defilements in the mind, you see what a relief it is, what a, uh, an easing of the tension in the mind and a sense of tranquility or spaciousness or calmness. And this is a notable improvement over the heat and agitation of an obsessing mind. And so we can see that the practice of concentration is much more powerful and it is much more subtle and it also requires a greater level of awareness and a greater continuity of mindfulness in order to receive the benefits. But even with that, with all of the continuity that we can muster through our practice, conditions, as we've noticed, are continually changing. And we can never prevent it, and we can never predict what conditions are coming next. And inevitably, at least up till now, some conditions have arisen that have provoked our mind into defiled reactivity. And so the Buddha recognized this, and he saw this, and he said, how are we going to, or he considered, how are we going to deal with, or what kind of practice can accommodate every set of conditions that might ever arise. And so he offered the third training of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is comprised of two factors, right view, we could say right understanding or understanding correctly, and right intention or right thought. We arrive at right view or the correct understanding. And remember, I mentioned earlier that right view or skillful view is the understanding that keeps us from suffering or keeps others from suffering when we act on that understanding. And so right view is the understanding that prevents or uproots suffering from the mind. We arrive at this right view and right thought through the practice of insight or vipassana. Tonight I want to speak about vipassana because it is a very subtle 
and a very powerful practice. It has the power of not only temporarily restraining the acting out of the defilements and not only temporarily subduing them from obsessing the mind, but right view through the development of insight has the power of uprooting the potential to resort to those defilements from the mind. It doesn't just hold them at bay. It doesn't just kind of keep them arrested. It actually takes the seed and uproots it or takes the roots, whatever they can sprout from, and uproots that potential from the mind so that no matter what set of conditions come about that we have to face, there is no root or roots in the mind to give rise to or to sprout in defilement. And so the mind would remain pure or the understanding would remain pure and the mind would remain free of defilements. And when, as the Buddha said, when these visitors to the mind, the defilements, no longer appear in the mind, then suffering comes to an end. And so it is Vipassana practice and the uprooting of the defilements that brings suffering in all of its forms to an end, permanently. There's one understanding that we need to um, be familiar with in order to really appreciate the teachings and the practice of Vipassana. And it is the, what is called the teachings of the two truths or the two views of reality. There is a conventional view of reality. Here we are. We're in a room in Serpentine, Australia, listening to a Dharma talk on the seventh day of a retreat taught by so-and-so, attended by so-and-so, and the weather is so-and-so, and it's 7.40 in the evening. This is our conventional understanding that we all agree to of what is going on here, what is being experienced. But there's another view of this reality that has no location or time. And it is the direct empirical perceptual experience that we each have of this time. And it's the sensations in the body, it's the sound of my voice, it is 
the understanding that comes through those sounds. There's no teacher, there's no student, there's no retreat. These are concepts that we conveniently construct so that we can have a mutual understanding of what's going on here. But as a direct perception, I, the teacher, to you, am just an appearance of shape and color. The one who's making the noise. We assign the role, teacher, to that person. Thank you. <laughs> but in reality, that's not your ex direct experience. And so, you can begin to see that, oh, there's a conventional, conceptual, consensual understanding we have. And then there's our very direct, immediate perception of this moment. Vipassana takes place at this immediate, direct, perceptual level. If we were to walk into a museum or an art gallery and we look across the foyer and we see a large tapestry on the wall opposite the door that we came through. We could look at that tapestry and see a picture that's telling some sort of story. There's a narrative to that tapestry and for purposes of this illustration, let's, let's assume that there's a picture of two women sitting at a table on which there's a bowl of fruit and they're having a conversation. And we can stand here and look across the hall and see that. And we understand, oh, that's a picture and this is the story of that picture. And as we walk across the foyer and we get closer to the tapestry, we lose the perspective of the whole tapestry being on a wall in a room and we're just staring at a large bowl of fruit. And depending on the quality of the tapestry, it can look luscious. And when we get a little closer, when we get so close that the guard will shoo you away, when you get so close and you're looking at that bowl of fruit or some piece of fruit in that bowl, you'll see, you'll recognize, you'll know for empirically there's no bowl, there's no fruit, there's only some thread that's colored and tied in knots in a very elaborate display. And you could take that apart if you could get your hands on it. And, and you'd never find a fruit there. You would just find very microscopic threads out of which the whole story of two women sitting at a table over, you know, on which there's a bowl of fruit or having a conversation. Well, from one perspective, there's a story there. But from the empirically observed perspective, there's no story, there's no fruit, there's no women, there's no table. 
there's just these threads, colorful threads arranged in an elaborate matrix. That process of walking across the room and getting a closer look at what's really going on there is, we could say, the deconstruction of the narrative into its pixels of phenomena. Vipassana practice does the same thing with our life. It looks at the moment-to-moment experience of our life. And rather than being entangled or seeing it at the level of the narrative of our life, you know, it's all about me my joys, sorrows, fears, shames, blames, you know, desires, plans, memories. Rather than seeing it at that level, we see it at the level, uh, the pixelated view of this moment, which is some sensory flickerings in the body and some, you know, conceptual and colorful flickerings of the mind which we glue all together into a picture and get identified with it and give it a story and call me. But when you look at a moment of life through the pixelating lens of Vipassana, you see a very different view of reality. And it reveals some very profound understanding, which is useful in our life at the narrative level. What does the pixelated view reveal? What is the wisdom that Vipassana reveals to us that is so useful in our life. Vipassana means seeing clearly. It isn't seeing with your eyes clearly. It's seeing with the mind clearly. And when you see clearly with the mind, you understand. It's really understanding clearly or accurately that is the result of successful Vipassana. And what we understand are called the three universal characteristics. You know when you look at those, that, that tapestry and you finally get it apart and you've, pick, you, you've, you've pixelated it to all the threads, what you'll discover is that every thread has a size, a shape, and a color. I suppose you could say it's made of a certain material too. Some are silk, some are cotton, some are whatever. But it has, each one of them has these three characteristics. Well, each pixel that are the composite elements 
of every moment of our life also has three characteristics. Every pixel that goes into every moment of our life has three characteristics. And these are called anicca, usually translated as impermanence, dukkha, which I spoke extensively about the other night, but usually translated as unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, the anatta characteristic, which is often translated as no self, not self, but really it means, well, it's conditioned. It's no inherent entityness. So I want to speak about these three characteristics <clears throat> because they are so part and parcel, really, of the practice of insight. Anicca means that something is subject to occur and disappear, that it's momentary, that it's not permanent. In essence, that it's impermanent. Now, we know that things are impermanent. We see seasons change. We see people grow up. We see ourselves grow up. We see change all around us. But we see it through the lens of conceptually understanding. Yesterday, you know, was like this, and today is like that. The flower that I picked yesterday is now wilted today. And conceptually, we understand that. We didn't see it happen. So too, when we stand in front of the mirror every day, we don't see too much change. I mean, did anybody ever look in the mirror and say, hey, what are you doing in there? I mean, it's very familiar what we see. But if we could skip the intervening years from the first time we recognized ourselves in a mirror to now, <laughs> we wouldn't recognize what we saw. Because the change, well, we're impermanent, moment to moment, day by day. So just knowing about impermanence is helpful because it helps us to, you know, reframe our expectations, reframe our plans in a realistic way. Things change. You know, let's not be surprised when we change, plans change, the weather changes, other people change. So it helps us to make adjustments in our expectations of ourselves and others. And even with this understanding that everything is constantly changing, we can look back, and in practice we do look back on our life doing this personal history review that I've mentioned, and we see how much change each one of us has been through in our likes and dislikes, size, shape, color, friends, behaviors, skills, knowledge, wisdom, interests, plans, aspirations. Everything about us 
has changed over and over again. Some of which we're quite happy for, and a lot of which we're not. Some of the change has been foisted off on us. We've been more victimized by it than benefited by it, and it's painful. And so some of the change that we've been put through when seen through this new understanding, we can let go. We can let go of some of the resistance to the change. Some of the, we can let go of some of the uh, shame or the blame or the whatever it is that has caused us the suffering that come from that change. It is said that in the practice of um, Vipassana, that impermanence is hidden by the massive continuity of phenomena. Well, the massive continuity of phenomena is when you stand in front of the mirror every day and you keep seeing, and then how many days? 365 to a year, I'm 62. That's a lot of looking in a mirror. There's a lot of continuity. You know, there's a lot of gaps, but it's pretty continuous. And because of that massive continuity of self-reflection, every day I have looked permanent. I've looked the same one day after the other. And so too, when we look at our life at a moment, moment-to-moment experience, it looks permanent. On Hawaii, where we live, they have a traditional Hawaiian meal, uh, ceremony, uh, celebrations called the luau. And you get together and have a lot of, a lot of food to eat, and Hawaiian dancers, and it's always at sunset looking out over the ocean. And then as it gets dark, the dancers come out and, and do their hula, and the men dancers and the women dancers. And there's always one man dancer, one male dancer who does a fire dance when it gets just dark enough that you can't really see very clearly. But you can see the stage. And so he's on stage, the lights are on, he's got a torch, thing, and he lights one end of the torch. Then he starts doing his dance, and he starts spinning, and doing, and they turn out the lights. And what you see is this design created by the torch. And sometimes it's a circle, and sometimes it's figure eight, and sometimes whatever it is. And when it's twirling around and you look at it, you see a circle of light, even though you know there's no circle of light. It is just due to the massive continuity of the speed of that circling that creates the impression that there's a circle, when in fact there's no circle. There's just a point of light moving rapidly. Our body looks like it's permanent, but I don't know the science behind it, but every cell in our body is undergoing massive change. Day by day, moment by moment, things are just happening and we're sloughing off cells and growing new ones. And whatever it is that makes up this body now wasn't around 10 years ago. I don't think there's any part of it that's here but we haven't noticed it. The massive continuity of the replacement of cells and 
tissue or whatever in the body, and we've missed it. We've missed the fact that we're so impermanent because we can't see through this massive continuity of phenomena. So too with our mind. You know, we have some, some sense of ourselves that our parents kind of passed on to us. Oh, Stevie, you're such a cute little boy. We love you so much. You're such a good boy. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> you know, and other people chipped in too a little bit. There was a few contrary opinions, but, you know. <laughs> and so now my name is Steve. I'm a good big boy. <laughs> you know. And I have heavily edited, or I should say censored, my personal history to believe it. And we do. We heavily edit what we have gone through, what we've experienced, what we felt, what we've done, in order to preserve the sense of ourself that we're at least familiar with and comfortable with. It's not true. <laughs> you know, whatever you think you are, you're not. You know, there's a whole lot of skeletons in the closet we'd rather not look at. And so we're able to sustain this fiction of a self, a nice, firm, solid, reliable, dependable, honest, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, <laughs> kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, reverent, etc. self, which isn't true. When we practice Vipassana and we see through all of our defense mechanisms, and as I mentioned, when we see things as they really are, without any censoring, without any editing, we have to somehow come to terms with what we see. We have to let go of a, a lot of false, wrong understandings about ourselves and about others. This is not easy. This is, this is definitely not easy. It's not easy to uncover all the skeletons in the closet, and it's not easy to accommodate them, to accept them, to acknowledge them, to integrate them into our sense of ourself. And so the task for us is to, uh, to learn how to do that. <coughs> a friend of ours who is also a practitioner and scholar and researcher says that insight practice is one long grieving process. And the task to practice insight successfully is to learn how to grieve effectively. Because every sense of ourself that has ever been conditioned into being through random circumstances is gone. Everything that we've ever experienced is over. It's finished. And if we haven't yet let go of that sense of ourself and we're still holding on to it, we've not experienced the loss of it, we've not experienced the grief of it, and we're stuck. The mind is stuck. That sense of self is interfering with our ability to be fully present in this moment. And we can see that. We can see how much pressure 
cast self-image exerts on our experience in the present moment. Many years ago, decades ago, when my significant relationship of seven years was coming to an end, and I didn't want it to, it was painful, as end of relationships are. And I used to say to my receding significant other, or plead with her, Remember the way things used to be? Remember the way things used to be? That's the way they still are. I wanted to believe that. She didn't. And it was painful to not have my reality, my conventional, conceptual reality of who I was, how I was, to not have it confirmed. And we, we meet this regularly in our practice of Vipassana. We see that who we think we are, how we think we are, what we think we are or aren't, is just not confirmed consistently. Why? Everything is continually changing. We are not solid. Our sense of ourself is not solid. Our ability to believe this about ourself is undermined and eventually uprooted. But in order to survive that, we have to learn to be present in each moment with the way things are and let that be good enough. And that's a challenge. But it's this, this practice of insight that will reveal the momentariness of all experience. Not just what is being known, but also the knowing. You know, for many of us, it seems like the person who started the retreat seven days ago is still here working at it, trying to get it together. Well, there's a place in time and practice, in Vipassana practice, where you see, it's not only the breath that's changing and thoughts that's changing and moods that's changing or sensations in the body that's changing. It's the perception of the one who we think is being mindful. And when we see that the observing itself is a changing, fluxing, nothing steady, solid, stable, it's very is very confronting, it's very destabilizing to think that the me who started the retreat is long gone, it's history. And the me who started the talk is history, gone. It's not, not here now. And the one who's listening is changing moment to moment because we, we can't see, we can't see the impermanent, fluxing nature of knowing. It feels solid. It feels like it's continuous. But at the deeper levels of insight, we see, we understand 
that the knower or knowing does not refer to a knower. There's no same knower from one moment to the next. And we see this. We understand this at the deepest levels of insight. So the first understanding of of practicing Vipassana is the understanding of impermanence. And the Buddha was explicit. A moment of seeing the impermanent nature of phenomena is just invaluable. And he, he, he gives some, and it's just coming to me, but it, I can only paraphrase it. You know, he said, you know, you can offer all the dana you want. You can offer, you can have a whole life of being generous and practicing generosity. And that's great. That's a tremendous benefit. But even more than that is a life of, you know, strong loving kindness, just really developing strong loving kindness for all beings in all directions at all times. Powerful, powerful karmic act. But even more than that is a single instant of seeing impermanence. A single instant of seeing the depth of impermanence. And why is that? When we truly understand that things and self are impermanent, we cannot hold on. And it is craving, it is this holding on that causes dukkha. And when we can't hold on, dukkha comes to an end. It is that powerful. It's that significant to see the impermanent nature, to understand from direct empirical experience this uh, characteristic or this understanding of all things. The second insight in insight practice, Vipassana practice, is the insight into dukkha. Now, in conventional reality, we spend our time imagining, pursuing, acquiring, and indulging in as much pleasantness as we can. Sensual pleasure, social pleasure, spiritual pleasure, whatever we can get. Because, well, let's face it, we don't like unpleasantness. And we'd rather experience pleasant. And so we're looking for pleasantness, which is so much more satisfying. And no one can ever deny that pleasure is not satisfying. It is, momentarily. The weakness or the limitation is that it doesn't last. And we need another hit. We need a little more of whatever pleasure we can get. I spoke the other night about dukkha, the dukkha characteristic, and I mentioned that dukkha is seeing, or seeing dukkha, or understanding dukkha, is really opening to pain, physical pain, emotional pain, direct perceptual feeling of unpleasantness, which, well, we don't have to look far to confirm that. 
I also spoke about dukkha as the insecurity that we feel when we realize that everything is changing unavoidably, inevitably. Whatever we rely on for our happiness, our security, our sense of satisfaction, it is liable to change at any time. And we really can't prevent that from happening. That leaves us with a level of insecurity that oftentimes is just over the horizon of our vision or just on the periphery, out of sight, conveniently or out of sight, but not out of mind. It's still there, simmering away. And it is just, well, not very satisfactory. The third experience of dukkha that I mentioned is Sankara dukkha. And in some ways, it's, uh, it's something like existential dukkha. You know, we do all this for a lifetime, take care of this body, take care of this mind, and then it all comes to an end, and that's not very satisfactory. We don't want to die. We don't want it to end. As bad as it is, as good as it is, we still don't want it to end. As much of a struggle or as convenient as it is, we don't want it to end. And yet, it's going to. And that's not satisfactory. That it's, it's hard to say this is a, a joyfully anticipated event. It's not. And so, we live with this understanding. But we, while we know it conceptually in our head, in our mind, we don't live it directly in our experience. We still want pleasure, even though we know we can't have it all the time. We still want things to be stable, all the bases of our security. We want them to be stable. We try as best we can to keep our relationship stable, our job, our finances, our every, everything as stable as we can make it. And we put a lot of effort, a lot of energy into trying to do that. Well, even in our practice, we try to. We try to come back in and have the same, sitting, the same good sitting we had earlier. And you can't, we can't do it. It's unsatisfactory. It is said that true understanding, true depth of insight into dukkha is obscured by continually moving the body. Because we keep moving the body, we keep moving around, we don't quite get how unsatisfactory it is being in this body. We keep moving, we keep eating, we keep doing everything we can do to kind of keep it out of mind. And so when we practice insight, of course, there's a lot of stillness and there's a lot of paying attention to the body as we directly experience it. And when we do, it's not difficult to see dukkha. But it's difficult to accept it. It's really difficult to accept, to really accommodate 
the understanding that is staring us in the face all the time. This is not very satisfactory. Well, in part because what's the other choice? What's our other option? You know, it's not immediately clear what other option we have. But even during the brief time we've been here, you have no doubt seen that, you know, the body gets, we get, we get used to it. We get used to putting up with pain. We're a little more tolerant of pain, of some discomfort. Of We can sit a little more. We can put up with sleepiness. We can, we can put up with, we can accommodate, we can accept dukkha more now than at the beginning of the retreat. Isn't that true? Do this for a lifetime. What would you imagine? You can just you can just extrapolate and just see where the mind is going. It's through the development of mind, through the development of accepting the way things are, acknowledging and accepting the way things are, that makes it totally tolerable, totally acceptable. And I won't say pleasant, but we can arrive at an understanding of mind where we aren't resisting or fearing the pain, the insecurity, or the kind of the existential dukkha that I talked about. If we're not fearing it and we're not running away from it and we're willing to acknowledge and accept it, the mind that can accept all that, the mind that understands that, is at ease with all that. And so much of our suffering, when we look at the experiences of our life, is because we resist. We resist what we see. We resist what we feel. We, we don't like it, we comment, we're impatient, we're frustrated, we're disappointed, it's not what we want. And when all of that is removed because we've come to see from direct perception over and over again, and we've come to accept, we've grown in understanding the nature of dukkha. Well, actually, suffering comes to an end. This happens in the body. It happens in the mind. So much of our suffering is not having our mind reaffirmed, not having our sense of ourselves reaffirmed, not having our, not accepting or not finding our emotions and our uh, beliefs uh, acceptable. A few years ago, in the midst of a long-running challenge working with our local water department on Maui. (laughs) She works for the water department. um, I called for a meeting with the deputy director to try to iron out some of the just, uh, well, just the extraordinary uh, difficulties that we were facing, that we, we and our neighbors were facing. 
And so I drew up an agenda of a dozen or so items that I wanted to go over with the deputy director. And when I went to the meeting, he had his engineers and a few other uh, bureaucrats there with him. And so I started through my list of, well, couldn't we reduce the cost of this project that we're funding, which ended up being a million plus dollars? Couldn't we reduce the cost by changing the size of the pipe from eight inches to six inches? And, you know, that would save $100,000. And uh, so they had a discussion among the engineers and the deputy director. And after a few minutes, he came back and said, no, not able to. Section 234, ABC, page LMNOP, uh, not possible. Okay, next item. You know, we have to build a 10,000-gallon tank, storage tank. How about a 1,000-gallon tank? Wouldn't that do? I mean, it just serves to break the pressure. It's not for fire capacity, suppression capacity, and it does the same purpose, right? Right. But how about that? That'll save us a couple hundred thousand dollars. Another discussion for five minutes and, you know, talking about da-da-da-da-da-da, gosh knows what. But no, no, sorry, that's not going to be possible because section, page, <laughs> item. Okay. I went through a few more of my line items on the agenda, and every one was, no, that's not going to be possible. No, sorry, that's not going to be possible. No. After a few of these, the deputy director looked at me and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. So immediately, of course, my mind was flooded with all kinds of like Defilement. swear words. Defi <laughs> defilements, you're right. You know, it's just like, ooh, they were just kind of flooding through, you know, in resentment and anger, humiliation and shame and, you know, rage and just, da -da 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 -da. and I was just, well, stunned, really. And it seemed like hours went by when I was just kind of like, speechless, just watching this stuff go by my mind. Luckily, I'd had 30 years of practice under my cushion, or on my cushion, and I had some stability of mind, and I could see it. I could see it all go by. And before I spoke, or re reacted or responded, my mind arrived at this understanding. This is the way it is for me for now. <laughs> and the corollary of it was, this can be dealt with. When you really accept this is the way it is, the corollary is, it can be dealt with. I didn't know how. I can't say I was happy, but I wasn't going to stick my foot in my mouth or my fist in his face, <laughs> you know, verbally. And I was just like, oh, right, okay, next item on the agenda, let's see. <laughs> you know, and, and on we went to, to no relief, frankly. But being able to feel dukkha, physical dukkha, emotional dukkha, existential dukkha, and accept it is a lifesaver. And it will be for you as you as you gain in this capacity. It is just will save you from so much, well, suffering. 
because we understand this is the nature of all phenomena. It has the dukkha characteristic. It is unsatisfying. It is unsatisfactory. That is the characteristic of all phenomena. Hard to accept, you know, even intellectually, but experientially we see it over and over and over again, and in time we do come to integrate that knowledge into our way of understanding and our way of seeing the world and seeing the conditions of our world. Now you'd think, gosh, if I'm going to accept dukkha and, and unsatisfactoriness, man, my life's going to be miserable. On the contrary, it is the understanding of dukkha that prevents us from getting entangled in dukkha. It's a significant point to understand that when we truly accept and understand dukkha, the truth of dukkha, we're actually free from personalizing it as my suffering. This is a painful lesson to learn, but an immense gift that the Dharma or Vipassana offers us. The third insight that Vipassana reveals to us, the third understanding, the third characteristic of all phenomena that Vipassana reveals to us is the, the fact that whatever we experience is insubstantial. It's ephemeral. It has no solidity. It has no essence no enduring essence. Well, that's okay when we look at a rainbow and we understand that. But in practice, we're looking at ourself. And we're looking at this body, we're looking at this mind, we're looking at our sense of ourself. And ordinarily, in conventional reality, it seems like there's a me here. There's a me who is experiencing all this. There's a me who makes the decision. There's a me who, who does, who feels, who thinks, who plans, who suffers, who... And this is a conventional understanding that we all have. And it's an intuitive understanding. It's, it's you know, uh, apparently uh, true. Until we practice Vipassana and we really start looking at what is this self that seems so solid? What is it, really? And then we begin to pixelate the mind. We pixelate the body. We pixelate this whole narrative that's called my life. And we pixelate it and, well, in time, we cannot find anything that endures for very long. It's just momentary fragments of memory, plans, thoughts, aspirations, sensations, emotions that keep arising incessantly. And until we look closely, it's all glued together with attachment and clinging. And we insert a sense of I into it. 
Well, mindfulness is the solvent of that glue that holds it all together. Mindfulness dissolves the glue that holds all those pixels together and we see this, well, this just a sequential display of stuff which we have identified with in the past. But in time, through practicing mindfulness and through seeing and understanding the nature of all these pixels, we realize, we deeply understand that there's no one to whom it is happening. The appearance of someone is only due to the holding on to these sensations, these memories, these plans, this hurt, this sense of ourself. Because we hold on, there seems like a self. When we let go, as we learn to in practice, we learn to see things when they're there, to let them go when they're gone, and to grieve their loss and move on. And we see there really is no eternal, enduring entity in this process. Well, this is not easy, as you can expect, because we are pretty heavily invested in our sense of ourself. And we want others to be invested and to confirm our sense of self. And when we look at this tapestry telling the story of our life, it all unravels. Well, it's not easy. It's not easy to see the unraveling of your life, you know, and who you think you are. And predictably, we go through a tremendous amount of resistance, anger, blame, frustration, fear, terror, despair, depression, anxiety, panic. So if you've seen any of those this uh, week, good, your practice is right on schedule. <laughs> but we, we will see that and our self will just rebel and resist and scream and holler and mindfulness will, well, with some compassion and with some metta and with some equanimity, we, we, we will just keep nudging our mindfulness along so that liberating insight can occur. It will, in time. And what is it that happens? The understanding of the anatta characteristic, the understanding of the conditionality of all things, or the understanding of no essence within anythingness. That understanding gets firmly rooted in the mind and the contrary misunderstanding gets uprooted from the mind. So that no matter what experience you find yourself in, no matter what set of conditions arise, conditioning some sense of self, you don't buy into it. You don't get identified with it. Experience happens. You know, conditions are still unfolding, even after very deep and profound insight into the anatta characteristic. Experience still happens. But the sense of self 
that is conditioned by this moment's circumstances is known to be just a temporary, colorful appearance in the mind. It's not real. It doesn't last from one moment to the next. If we get identified with it, well, it might feel comfortable for a moment, but when conditions change, it's baggage. In leading retreats like we do, of course, we fly around a lot, and uh, we like to fly on United Airlines and its uh, affiliated partners so that we can acquire miles. <laughs> and so, of course, years and years ago, we joined the Frequent Flyer Club, and we get a lot of miles. And so we've got this uh, elevated membership in the, in, the, in the Frequent Flyer Club. Uh, you know, they have, there's a basic, basic member, and then they have uh, premier. You know, if, if you fly 25 flights or 25,000 miles or something, you get premier. And then you can get premier executive if you fly 50,000 miles or 50 flights or something like that. And then if you fly 100,000 miles, top of the heap. Wow. So, frequent flyer, 100,000 miles. One time, I had a flight from San Francisco to Boston to go teach a retreat. And just before I was to fly, I realized I'd made the flight a day late. I was going to arrive a day late. So I called up the airlines and I said, I got I to gotta fly a day earlier. Can I fly standby on the same flight? And they said, sure. There's all kinds of seats available on the red-eye midnight flight from San Francisco to Boston the day before. I said, great, coming down, packed my bags, went to the airport, got to the airport in time to register, to, to, to check in, and it was pandemonium at the gate. I said, oh, I got to the gate, and I said, what's going on? They said, oh, one of our flights to Boston got canceled. Everybody on that flight's trying to get on this one. It's a mess. It's way overbooked. I said, wait a minute. I want to fly standby on that flight. And they said, not a chance. It's, I'm a frequent flyer, premier executive. You know, if there's any empty seats, can I have it? Well, there's not going to be any empty seats, they said. So I said, well, can I go up to the gate anyway? So I got my little boarding pass, you know, uh, flying standby. I went up to the gate. It, too, was pandemonium. So I went to talk to the, uh, the check-in people. I said, you know, I'd like to fly standby. They said, not a chance. Yeah, but I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a premier executive frequent flyer. So if there's, a, if there's a seat on that plane, I'd like to have it. Okay, okay, well just sit over there with the others that want to fly standby. Okay, so they got everybody boarding on the plane. They called everybody in, you know, and while they're boarding and the last one going down the gangplank, they, they called the three of us who wanted to fly standby to come to the door of the plane and if there was an empty seat, they would let us have it. And I reminded them that I was a frequent flyer, premier executive. <laughs> got down to the door of the plane. They finally got everybody sitting down, one empty seat. Uh, Up back. So I said, I'm the frequent <laughs> Okay, okay, you can get on. So I said, oh, I'm so happy. It's like I was going to get on the plane. I was going to get there. I was going to find great. Got up back. And of course, it's no overhead space. Got to put my bag under my feet, and it's between two guys that look like they play for some football team. And it's like, 
<laughs> kind of fitting myself in the middle there, and it's just kind of like, I'm still happy. It's like, okay, I'm going, thank goodness. Okay, so they're getting everybody settled down, everybody settled in, you know, and they found another seat. And they said, oh, there's an empty seat. There wasn't somebody in the toilet. So they called the second person who was flying standby, put him in that seat. Good for him. They closed the door. You know, they do a final destination check. This plane is going to San Francisco. If you're not intending to go to San Francisco, please let us know so we can get you off the plane. Oh, geez, somebody rang the bell, and uh, somebody from first class got up and said, hey, I I'm, not going to San I'm not going to Boston. So they opened the door, and this guy from first class walked out. So they said, oh, hey, you want to fly standby? Come on, there's a seat now. They put him in first class seat. <laughs> hey. I'm the frequent flyer with the, the premier executive. Ring the bell. When, hey, you know, I, can I have that seat? I'm a frequent flyer, you know, treat me well. You know? They said, you're on the plane, you're gonna get there, sit down, we're leaving. Yeah. Oh, I was upset. Ah, gee, first half hour of the flight, I was like composing my letter to United Airlines. Why they were treating me badly as a frequent flyer and I might change my mind and never fly with them again. You know, after a half hour, I was in a wreck. I just said, well, I got another five and a half hours of this. If I don't get a handle on what's going on, I'm gonna be a wreck when I get to Boston. So I said, well, I'm on the plane. I'll get there, no problem. Let it go. You know, five and a half hours later, arrive in Boston, no problem. Still frequent flyer, still premier executive. They still treat me nice most of the time. <laughs> what happened? As long as I was identified with the story I was telling myself about myself, I was suffering. As soon as I could see the story and let go of it, stop suffering. Everything else stays the same. Still on the plane, still a frequent flyer, everything the same except no suffering. question for you. What story have you been telling yourself today about yourself that's causing you suffering? It's a story. You want to stop suffering? Let go of the story. Everything else stays the same. Life goes on. You have everything, you do everything, everything is the same, except you don't suffer. Why? Because we see through this artificial sense of self, this conditionally constructed sense of self, which is just an idea. It's a convenient fiction that we believe, even when it causes us suffering. If we practice insight, we will see this more quickly, thankfully, and more often. And we'll just live our life without attaching and identifying to the story as if it was my life. Your life is one thing. The story is quite another. It's the story that causes the suffering. Let go of the story. 
This is the value of practicing insight. This is what Vipassana does, is it uproots the wrong understandings we have about things being permanent, things being satisfying, things being all about me, self. It removes this misunderstanding from the mind so that we can get on with life without suffering or suffering less until we finally uproot them. We live in illusion and the appearance of things, Kalu Rinpoche says. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are everything. And being everything, you are nothing. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. But there is a reality. We are that reality. When you see this, when you really understand this, you see that you're everything and you're nothing. That's all. So let's sit for a moment. The words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.